In our day, there are several people who are warning about toxic masculinity. Often it's a warning uh, to young men to make sure that they don't embrace toxic masculinity. Uh, We've been working through the book of Proverbs. Remember, Proverbs is written to a young man. And Solomon has a warning that came thousands of years before the warning about toxic masculinity, in which I think he warns about something perhaps somewhat related, uh, but more precise. He warns about worthless and wicked masculinity. And he warns about that in the passage we're going to look at this evening in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. Could you take your Bibles and open up uh, to that chapter in that verse. And I, and I say that this is worthless and wicked masculinity in part because of the language he uses and because I think he is talking about a, a temptation for young men. There is an appeal for them to begin to practice this type of lifestyle and especially appealing to young men. It doesn't mean that, that women can't fall into these kinds of sins, but I think these are sins that are, are, are more prevalent among young men. And so he warns in verses 12 to 15 about a a worthless and wicked masculinity and gives the description in the first three verses. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man. That word worthless is a word you might actually be somewhat familiar with. It's the word uh, Belial or Belial. Uh, and you might be familiar with it because it actually is translated sometimes that way. It's just given that, that gloss a few times. It is an idea of someone who is evil, uh, someone who is a troublemaker. The language was used to describe Eli's sons who were abusing their role as priests. It was used to describe the men of Gibeon who came and and wanted to sexually assault and rape uh, the Levite and ended up doing so and killing the concubine. They're described as worthless people. Uh, It ultimately is used to describe Satan himself in 2 Corinthians 6.15, as the prime example of this kind of person. It is someone who is so wicked and so perverse that he's not in any way a benefit to society. That's why he's worthless. In fact, he's, he's probably worse than worthless. He's a hindrance. He's a drain on the community. And so this person is also described as a wicked man, an evil or malicious person, someone who would actually seek to uh, harm others and to do damage. And what is this worthless or wicked man? And there's a series of descriptions that are given in the rest of these verses. And I don't think that Solomon here is saying every single person has all of these. I, th- I think several of them would be the point. These are the kinds of things that worthless, worthless and wicked men do. What do they do? Well, they walk with a perverse or crooked mouth. They distort the truth. They're constantly lying, giving half-truths, white lies. They're deceiving. They are twisting. And they walk about in this way. Their mouth, in a sense, is permanently in this state. It's almost the the picture that Solomon gives. It's as if they're walking around with a, a, a twisted mouth because everything they're saying seems to be characterized by lies and deception. Verse 13, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. Now, if all we were to read this verse and just kind of take it at face value, you might think, oh, this is why my mother said it's rude to point, because this is what Proverbs says. But this isn't saying it's, it's always wrong to wink. 
or it's always wrong to point with your finger. In the context, I think the idea is that this is somehow giving signals that go along with his lying speech. And so you almost pictured it this way. He's saying something to someone, and he's lying to that person, but to his associates, to his followers, to his co-conspirators, he's signaling them. He's winking behind the person's back. He's shuffling his feet in some way to indicate this is now the time in which we're to act, or is pointing and, and giving some kind of signs. And the point is, his communication is not designed to be helpful or to be truthful, but it's designed to bring about destruction. And this happens because, verse 14, he, with perversity in his heart, continually devises evil. And here we have a list of a whole host of body parts, mouth, hands, feet, heart. And Proverbs often points to those kinds of things, I think, to indicate the whole person. And this worthless and wicked man is wholly devoted to evil. So because his heart is devoted to evil, these outward signs, what he does, what he communicates is an indication of what's happening in his heart. And in his heart, he's continually devising evil. He is scheming. He is planning. He is figuring out ways to carry out harm upon others. And it starts there in the heart. And then it moves to communication and then ultimately carries itself out with actions that bring about destruction upon an unwitting victim. And then finally, verse 14, who spreads strife. And in fact, in the original, there, there's a little bit of a change in the, the meter or in the pattern that's given here. That the others matched up well, and this one kind of stands out. And I think it's in part because Solomon is, is pointing to the fact that this is really the climax. This is the ultimate result. This is part of what makes this person so heinous. He spreads strife. He, he wants to see discord go out Bitter conflict. This is someone, maybe, the idea is divide and conquer. If I can get people fighting with each other, I can kind of manipulate myself to get to the front. Or I think often it's just, this is someone who loves the fight. They love conflict. And they love creating strife and conflict. And so what they do is geared toward that end. This is how Solomon describes a worthless, wicked man. And in verse 15, he gives his end. He's described him, and now he offers his destruction. Therefore, the therefore is, is pointing especially to that last phrase, he shows strife, but I think to the whole description. And in a sense, he's saying this is the result of how he has lived his life, the choices he's made. The things he has said, the things he has done, this has led to this. His calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken and there will be no healing. That his calamity is the result of his actions. It is calamity. It is destruction. He is broken. And it comes suddenly and instantly. It is swift and it is surprising. He doesn't see it coming. I'll, I'm going to risk uh, bringing up a, a certain individual that you may have seen in the news. And I'm going to risk it because I confess I haven't delved into all the ins and outs of what's going on. But you may have heard the, the name Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate is someone who became well-known for pushing out a certain type of masculinity. 
and is emphasizing uh, the way that men should act. And, and he's actually been arrested for potentially running a prostitution ring. And it seemed to come out of nowhere. Now, I don't know if he is guilty of what he's been accused of. And so I, I, I want to preface it in that way. But if he is, he is a great example of what Solomon is talking about. Because he loved the fight. And he was not really concerned about others. And yet, when everything seemed to be at his height, when he's at his most popular, his calamity has come upon him swiftly and instantly. And yet, I think what Solomon gets at is probably even more dire than the situation that Andrew Tate might find himself in. Because as he points out, he will be broken and there will be no healing. That here, the indication is final judgment. Final destruction. There will come a point in time in which he was not expecting it, but he will meet his end, and there is no way to get out of it. And in verse 16, Solomon begins to describe something that we first we might think is, is different from what he's just been talking about. In verse 16, if you have a NASB, you'll see it's listed as a new paragraph. You might have a new section in your uh, translation as well. There are six things with the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. But I think this was put here for a specific reason. I think it's listed the way it is because Solomon wants his son to remember these seven things, to remember them as things that the Lord hates. But he puts them right here because the things that the Lord hates are exactly what he just described as characterizing the worthless and wicked man. Because look at these listing. Verse 17, there are haughty eyes, just like in verse 13, the one who's winking with his eye. His hands are shedding innocent blood. He's signaling and pointing with his hands. He has a lying tongue, just as the person, the worthless man, speaks with a perverse mouth. He has feet that devise wicked plans, and he signals with his feet. And at the very end, we have the same language at the end of verse 14, who spreads strife, at the end of verse 19, who spreads strife. And so why is this person so worthless and wicked? Because he's characterized by the things that God hates. That God despises these things. And it's interesting that this list is really focused on how people relate to each other. Certainly, the Lord despises idolatry. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This list is, in a sense, focused on that second primarily. They don't love others as they should. And God is concerned with how we treat other people. God is concerned with our horizontal relationships. Yes, he is concerned with our vertical relationship with him. The way we treat others is a reflection of that. And so here he focuses on these six things. And the phrasing here, there are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him, is, is something that's been debated and discussed about exactly what that means. I don't know that I can say definitively this is why it's listed this way. I think one reason is certainly the idea that it's, it's meant to be a number to kind of stick in your mind. I think as well, the indication is probably to say these are seven, but it doesn't mean these are the only seven. It's not meant to be exhaustive, but representative. 
And seven is a significant number in, in biblical thinking. It is the number of completion or the number of perfection. And so it might be that's why it's that way. Uh, I think all of those combined point to it. Some people say that the reason it says seven in our abomination is because the last one is specifically abominable. I don't know that that's the best way to understand it. In part because the structure of it, I think, actually points to a, a chiasm more than it does a straight list. And a chiasm in Scripture is, is a list that, that has outer points, the first and last, that kind of correspond to each other. And the second, the second, the last correspond to each other. And these correspond to each other. And you get to the middle, and the middle is, is really central to what's going on. And in this list, I think you have the first and last are, are significant, and I'll get to that in a moment. But they relate to each other, and, and then the, they relate to each other to get to the center. So it begins with a haughty look, a haughty eyes, and ends with one who spreads strife. And we'll come back to that. But then we have a lying tongue and a false witness who utters lies. It certainly matches up with each other. And hands that shed innocent blood, and feet that run rapidly to evil. And then at the center you have a heart. Because Proverbs continually points to the heart being the heart of the matter. It's at the center. And all these others flow out of it. And I think that's what Solomon points to in this section. And he describes these things as things which the Lord hates, things which are an abomination to him. That the greatest level of, of outrage, the highest form of despising these things. And that language might be language that strikes you as strange. Because in our day, if we think about what God is like, we think our God is the God who loves. Our God is the lo- God who welcomes people. Our God is the God who shows mercy and grace. And so how could we talk about God hating something? And the answer is, well, actually, the Bible talks about that a decent amount. But it also talks about that because the only way for God to be a God who loves is also to be a God who hates. That if you love your children, you can't be indifferent about the things that could destroy your children. If you really love them, you hate the things that would threaten your children. If you love your marriage, you can't be not care about the things that threaten to destroy your marriage. You have to hate those things that would destroy your marriage. And if you don't really hate them, you have to wonder, how much do you really love this thing? And God loves holiness. God loves righteousness. And certainly, God loves health in the community. And why do we say a worthless and wicked person does? He offers no value to the community. But instead, one of the things that characterizes him is strife. And because God loves unity, God hates strife and discord. And so he describes these things that he hates. And what are they? First of all, haughty eyes. As I said, I think the primary focus is on relations to others, but this language is used to talk about people who, who sin with a high hand, those who disregard God and his commandments. And that certainly is, is what proud people are like. That proud people don't look to God for help. Proud people think, I have the answers. 
And because they think I have the answers, they also don't look at others with kindness and compassion, but they look down upon others. And they view others as a means toward their own purposes and their own ends. And I think this is first in the list, in part, because pride is at the heart of of so many sins. Some theologians have said it's really at the basis of all sins. It certainly seemed to be at the heart of Satan's downfall. And with Adam and Eve, as they sinned, what was one of the things they thought about the fruit? It was desirable to make one wise. They wanted to be like God. And therefore, they took the fruit and ate it. And so it's here at the beginning of this list because it is at the heart of so many sins. But I think it's also here because you, you basically have another rundown of body parts. And it starts at the top and it works its way down. It goes from the eyes to the mouth to the hands to the heart to the feet. And so it begins here with the eyes. And then it moves on, secondly, to a lying tongue. Lying here is, is a, is, I think, a malicious lying, really, is indication here. It's lying that is designed to mislead and harm others. And then you have, and hands that shed innocent blood. And that and is, is intentionally there because it's reflective of what's happening in the Hebrew. And I think that does two things. It, it helps us to see the first two are kind of tied in with the third. But it also does point to the, that fourth one, as I mentioned, already as central. Because you have the same thing in the second group. So that's why the heart, I think, is indicated as central here. But what is the, what are these first two tied to? They are tied to hands that shed innocent blood. So I heard one person put it, when you think that you are better than others, and when you begin to, to with your mouth, speak in ways that show you don't really care about others, you don't owe them the truth, doesn't matter what you say about them or to them. You're moving down a path that shows you have ultimate contempt for these people. And that's exactly the path that leads to murder. Because you don't care about their life. You don't care about them. Why is murder so heinous? Why is it wrong to shed innocent blood? Because scripture tells us people are made in the image of God. If you're proud and you lie, you've already demonstrated, you don't care that people are made in the image of God. So why should you care about their life? Unfortunately, we are a culture that is steeped in the shedding of innocent blood. And that indication of innocent blood is important because it's not just talking about killing, it's talking about murder. It's unjustly taking the life of another. Pastor Doran reminded us that our very laws in our country allow thousands of innocent lives to be killed. Shedding of innocent blood. I don't know if you've been following what's been happening in Canada, but often what happens in Canada ends up making its way down into the United States, but there is a massive spike right now in what's often labeled as made deaths, medically assisted assistance in death or in dying. Because increasingly, hosts of people are having their lives ended by medical professionals. People are involved in the killing of innocent blood, taking life rather than saving life. 
And I wonder, especially as I, I mentioned, these are risks and dangers for young men. I, if you look around at, at most murders outside of things like abortion or euthanasia, the, the more violent acts of taking life are acts that are done by young men. And I think we do need to be careful, especially with our, our young boys, that we don't glorify violence. We don't glorify murder. There are whole video games that are designed to, to be this person who just doesn't care about life. And I understand there's a difference between characters in a video game and actual people. And I think most people can recognize that. But I wonder how, how much we, we just create a callousness and how much we begin to think that actually these things are what makes someone valiant and these things are what makes someone truly a man. We begin to glorify violence rather than grieving at hands that would shed innocent blood. In verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. At the center of our physical actions and at the center of our spiritual actions is our hearts. And hearts that devise wicked plans, really, the language kind of, I think, reminds us of what God condemns humanity for in Genesis 6 for the flood, that their hearts are only evil continually. They're constantly devising wicked plans. They're thinking through ways they can carry out their wickedness. And then their feet run rapidly to evil. Their heart is bent on evil and their feet are quick to carry it out. They move quickly toward their evil plans. Verse 19, they're a false witness who utters lies. Now we've, we've moved away from the body parts. And we've moved, I think, in a sense, to the actual actions to destroy the community. And one of them is bearing false witness. Here it's a bit more formal than just the lying tongue. It is the indication of, of a trial. Someone who would perjure themselves. Someone who would intentionally lie about someone else. And this is something that God took very seriously. Because one of the ways that justice was carried out was through the testimony of witnesses against other people. And if you lied, if you bore false witness, you were to receive the punishment you wanted the other person to receive. Because when you bear false witness, what are you doing? You know you're trying to lead to the destruction of the other person. And the language is interesting. The phrase, he utters lies. It almost has the idea of, maybe even you have a translation that would say this, he breathes it out. It's if lying has become so central to who this person is that it comes as naturally as breathing. There's no concern for the truth. All that matters is working toward his own purposes and ends. Then finally, one who spreads strife among brothers. And here I do think we, we reach a kind of climax, and it is just like the first haughty eyes was there because it kind of stood as a central underlying problem with all these others. Here as well is a central problem. Because God is concerned about unity, especially among those who should be united. Spreading strife among brothers. 
We, we, we know this reality. We, we have this kind of idea. You, you can't separate brothers. Brothers are made for adversity, Scripture would say. That they're meant to be united no matter what. And yet this wicked person would try to, to create discord among those who should have the strongest ties, the strongest binds. And therefore, they rightly receive God's hatred. Are there people like this in our day? You know, I, I, as I was studying through this passage, I couldn't help but think of how so much of, of what's being described here would describe so many of our politicians. I mean, they don't care about the truth. You have politicians who, who lie as if it's just as natural as breathing. And often, they will lie specifically to try to get you upset about someone else because they lie about who? Political opponents, people they want you to view as an enemy. Why? Because they're trying to create discord. So many of our politicians live and act in that way. Working to divide, working to sow strife and discord. Certainly as well, there's, there's a culture... Again, this is, I think, something that's dominant among young men. There's an online culture, you maybe have heard the term troll before. And if and I'm not talking about the people in the lower peninsula at this point in time, Michigan. On, on the internet, a troll is someone who, who just jumps into a conversation basically for the point of, of poking fun and just creating a fight. And there's a whole culture that loves that. People will create anonymous accounts. And all they want to do is get on and, and make comments and, and put out posts just for the, the sake of, of getting a fight started. Not because they care, not because they really are concerned about the truth. And that's the whole point. They're, they're just there because they love the fight. Or perhaps you think about even in a school like Inner City Baptist, in which you have a clique of people who... They have their own code. They have their own language. In a sense, they might wink at each other and point their fingers at each other, and they have a way to communicate to each other so that they can actually be harsh to others. Perhaps verbally harassing and mocking and bullying others. Perhaps physically harassing and bullying others. They have no concern outside of themselves. They're demonstrating wicked and worthless masculinity or humanity. Or perhaps, again, far too often you, you might see this among young people. The clique isn't so much designed to, to harass others as much as to kind of stand aloof from God and his people. A kind of a, a, a sneering mocking kind of approach to someone who's really dedicated to Christ. Someone who's really fully sold out and trying to do what's right. It's kind of a, oh, you're one of those people. And so doing, they're demonstrating a worthless and wicked mindset. So I would encourage us, if we are to avoid these things, what can we do? But one thing I'd say is we need to watch out for those who love conflict and fighting just for the sake of fighting. 
There is a difference between loving the truth so much that you are willing to fight for it and loving fighting so much that you don't really care about the truth. And there are many people who pose today as if they are warriors for the truth, but are really warriors for themselves. And how do you know this? Because how do they respond when they're not in line with the truth? If they love the truth, they're going to fight for that. Even if it means losing the fight they were in. Because they don't love the fight. They love the truth. And that's what we want to cultivate in ourselves and cultivate in our children. That yes, sometimes we need to take stands. But not all the time. Because not all, not, the truth isn't always what's at stake. Another thing that's important for us to do if we are going to make sure that we avoid this kind of wicked and worthless life and attitude is to recognize we cannot remain neutral on moral, moral things. That one of the, the goals as a Christian is that we would love what God loves and that we would hate what God hates. And when we see haughty eyes, lying tongues, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that are quick to run to evil. We see false witnesses who utter lies, and we see people who are sowing strife among brothers. We cannot remain indifferent. We cannot remain morally neutral. We cannot say, that does not matter. It does matter. It matters to God. As God sees those things, perfect hatred is his response. May we cultivate hearts that respond in that same way. As well, if we are to to make sure that we avoid this lifestyle, I think we probably want to, to work towards the opposite goal. And some commentators have pointed out it's interesting Do you look at Jesus as he lays out in the Beatitudes? What does he begin with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what's the first thing here? Things God hates are haughty eyes. And what does he end with? Blessed are the peacemakers. And what does this list end with? Those who sow strife among brothers. Then in a sense, if we are to be people who represent God and his values. We need to be the opposite of all these things. Because I said, who is the greatest example of a worthless, wicked person? The answer is Satan. That's why he is given that name, Belial or Balial. If you look through these things, he perfectly manifests them. He thinks, I will lift myself up against God, haughty eyes, He lies. He's the father of lies. Hands that shed innocent blood. 
that he certainly works towards the end of, of, of to see murders and happen. And, and even at the very beginning of how sin comes into the world, Satan brings sin into the world, and what immediately comes as a result, the first two people born in this world end up killing each other, shedding innocent blood. He has a heart that devises wicked plans. Paul warns us about the schemes of the devil. That he is devising these things that he hears about. Feet that run rapidly to evil. What's he doing? He's prowling around like a lion, looking for people to devour. A false witness who utters lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. As we stand before God's judgment, he lies and accuses us before him. And one who spreads strife among brothers. That he wants to see division and wars, and fighting. And yet, what is the opposite of all these things? Well, I think Jesus Christ perfectly represents the opposite of all these things. That rather than wanting to put himself in the place of God, Jesus was in the place of God, and yet did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to use for his own benefit, but he humbled himself. That Jesus, when he came, he spoke the truth because he is the truth. That rather than shedding innocent blood, Christ laid down his own life, his own innocent life for the good of others. Satan has a heart that devises wicked plans, but Christ is carrying out the perfect, wise, good purposes and plans of his Father. That rather than running rapidly to evil, Christ, is ever ready as a help to his people who call out to him in need. And that when Satan stands before Christ and accuses us as a false witness, what is Jesus? He is our advocate. He cries out in our defense and points to his own work on our behalf so that we can be made right before God. And rather than spreading strife among brothers, Jesus Christ is taking those who are far off and bringing them near through his blood. Which leads me then to, I think, a final reminder for us. Think about how much God loves unity because of how strongly he hates strife. And I mentioned, I think there's a connection between the first and the last, haughty eyes and those who sow strife. Because I think one of the biggest hindrances to unity among God's people, among brothers and sisters in Christ, is a proud look, a proud heart. That when we humble ourselves, that's when we work toward unity. As Philippians says, if we esteem others more important than ourselves, if we're not looking out for our own interests, we're looking out for the interests of others. That we, as God, need to love the unity of his people, and we need to be especially cautious. If we think that there might be something that we would do that would wrongly sow strife among our brothers and sisters in Christ, because God hates that. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that you are a God who loves. 
We thank you that you are a God who hates. You love with the perfect love. You hate with the perfect hatred. Lord, help us to have hearts that would love what you love and hate what you hate. Lord, help us not to fall into this wicked and worthless life. Help us not to allow our children to go down this path. Help us as a church to demonstrate the lives that follow the example of our Savior, not lives that show that we would be bound by Satan and his world and his values. We would show we've been taken from that kingdom and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.